second Bible reading tonight uh, comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 14, and we're going right through to chapter 9, verse 18. Uh, it can be found on page 703 of the Pew Bible. There is nothing else meaningless that occurs on earth. There is so- sorry, there is something else meaningless that occurs on earth. Righteous men who get what the wicked deserve, and wicked men who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is meaningless. So I commend the enjoyment of life, because nothing is better for a man under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Then joy will accompany him in his work all the days of the life God has given him under the sun. When I applied my mind to know wisdom and to observe man's labour on earth, his eyes not seeing sleep day or night, then I saw that God, what, all that God has done. No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all his efforts to search it out, man cannot discover its meaning. Even if a wise man claims he knows, he cannot really comprehend it. So I reflected on all this and concluded that the righteous and the wise, that the the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands. But no man knows whether love or hate awaits him. All share a common destiny. The righteous and the wicked the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. As it is with the good man, is with the good man, so with the sinner. As it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take them. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes us all. The hearts of men, moreover, are full of evil and there is madness in their hearts while, while they live and afterward they join the dead. Anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even the memory of, even the memory of them is forgotten. Their love, their hate and their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. Go eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for it is now that God favours what you do. Always be clothed in white, and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy your life with your wife, with whom you love, and the days of this, and all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun, all your meaningless days. For this is your lot in life, and in your toilsome labour under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for in the grave where you are going, there is neither working, nor planning, nor knowledge, nor wisdom." I have seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favour to the learned, but time and chance happen to them all. Moreover, no man knows when his hour will come. As fish are caught in a cruel net or birds are taken in a snare, so men are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. I also saw under the sun this example of wisdom that greatly impressed me. There was once a small city with only a few people in it, and a powerful king came against it, surrounded it, and built huge seed works against it. Now there lived in that city a poor man, but wise, and he saved the city by his wisdom. But nobody remembered that poor man. So I said, wisdom is better than strength, but the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are no longer heeded. The quiet words of the wise are more to be heeded than the shouts of a ruler of fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good.
Good day, everyone. Uh, as has been said a number of times, my name is Kester. Uh, I work with Pete Sorensen, who I'm sure many of you know. Uh, I work with him at Deacon, uh, telling people about Jesus. Uh, it's my great pleasure to be here today. Uh, we're going to get stuck into this actually quite difficult uh, passage, quite heavy. It's hard work. I'm going to roll up my sleeves. I want you to roll up your metaphorical uh, sleeves and get ready to do some hard work in the Bible. So please make sure you've got Bibles in front of you um, so you can read along and check what I'm saying is true and right. Let me pray for me one more time and for you as you listen to me and then we'll have a a go. Father God, uh, we thank and praise you that you are the Lord of everything and everyone and that you have sent your spirit and your word that we might know the truth and true wisdom. Lord, I pray that those two things together might give us sense now today. Amen. Well, I've lived in uh, Melbourne for about three years now. That's three years of trying to get used to uh, your famous weather. Uh, In Wollongong, where I grew up, uh, met Pete there, uh, it's consistently mild. Weather patterns are very easy to follow. Most of the time it's warm and humid, much like it is today. Or when it's not warm and humid, it's cool and humid. Three or four days uh, every summer, there's a big uh, suddenly change comes through, about three or four in the afternoon, the suddenly bluster, a famous wind that comes through the south coast of New South Wales, uh, and, it, and it cools you down. Uh, it's wonderful. Yeah, you can wear a t-shirt for half a winter in Wollongong, uh, and if the sky's clear, unlike here, you don't need an umbrella. So when I moved down, I became very uh, dependent on uh, the weather app on my telephone. In fact, the normal app wasn't good enough, I had to buy an app so that I could try and keep track uh, of, of the weather to try and make sense of what was going on in Melbourne. But even with the best, the premium weather app, uh, they still get it wrong, don't they? The, the data, all that data, all the, the predictions that they make, they still get it wrong half the time. It's the constant joke that we have about the weather, that they can never get it right, that the predictions that they have, it, but that's true of everything, isn't it? Now, we can't know... The future. Even our best guesses uh, are often not right. Uh, Things go along as we expect and then all of a sudden they don't and we're thrown off. Uh, We're dismayed, we're crushed. You could be starting out on a promising cricket career only to have a stray ball cut that short in death. How do you live in a world like that? How, How do you live in a world that is so unpredictable? Now, I understand over the last few weeks, uh, you guys have been working through the book of Ecclesiastes, listening to uh, the teacher as he explores life under the sun, this life that we are living. Uh, You've been listening to him as he searches for meaning, looking for a way to live wisely in this world. And today, he's dealing with the question that everyone is forced to to ponder at some stage. Uh, the teacher of all of us, really, look around and we see chance accidents, injustice, we see disasters, we see corruption. Now, how do we make sense of these things? How do we live in a world like this? How, what does wise living look like in that context? How, where can we find wisdom? The teacher looks at the world and he sees everything doesn't quite add up. He sees life going badly for the good, the innocent. And yet the wicked, the corrupt, they seem to prosper. Let's have a look at the text. Chapter 8, verse 14, he says this. There's something else meaningless that occurs 
on earth. Righteous men who get what the wicked deserve and wicked men who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is meaningless. Life just doesn't go the way we think it should. You know, we're still reeling from uh, really a, war, a year full of war and tragedies. Uh, in the news we've got IS killing Christians in Iraq and Syria, the crisis in Ukraine, two planes lost with all passengers, Ebola and so on. It's just been a year of disaster in the news, hasn't it? But the pressures of death is mounting. This week, I don't know if you heard this one, in Sydney there's a story of a tiny baby rescued out of a drain, thrown away by her mother. And now Philip Hughes cut down by a stray cricket ball in the prime of his life. What was he, 22, 25? 25. Okay, there you go. We, we see these things and we get riled up inside, don't we? It just doesn't make sense. You know, the news is reporting that the cricketers leaving the Hughes Hospital are inconsolable. That's the word that I keep hearing. That there's nothing that might comfort them. Our normal human response at times like this is to cry, why? Who's responsible? We want it to make sense. And sometimes I think we we try to construct meanings, trying to fit the pieces together. A few years ago, I was talking to a Chinese man, a Buddhist, and it was not long after the big tsunami hit Japan, a few years ago, you know, the one that wiped out the Fukushima power plant, the nuclear plant set. Uh, and we were talking about karma. I was trying to explain grace and he was talking about karma. And it, it was his firm view that, that, uh, that Japan was devastated, that tsunami hit Japan because of the evils that the Japanese did in China during the Second World War. So despite uh, the fact that the victims were the great or uh, you know, grandchildren or great-grandchildren of the perpetrators of the Second World War, uh, innocent of any particular wrongdoing, he didn't care. It made sense to him. They did bad, now they get bad. I think actually we, we want that. We want there to be a reason, as unfair as it might be, and we want to know it. But the teacher says no. There's something happening we just can't see. We don't, we don't get to know. There's a reality beyond our limited observations. We can't look around and make sense of this world. Look at verses 16 and 17 with me. When I applied my mind to know wisdom and to observe man's labour on the earth, his eyes not sleeping day or night, the stress of living, then I saw all that God had done. No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all his efforts to search it out, man cannot discover its meaning. Even if a wise man claims he knows, he cannot really comprehend it. So the teacher understands, yes, God's the one who's acting in the world, but what he is doing is beyond our knowing. There's something happening here and we can't just look around, observing with our eyes, with our minds. We can't know what it is. We just don't know. We don't have all the information. It's not been revealed. I think that's what he means in verse 14 and elsewhere in this section of Ecclesiastes. I think that's what he means by meaningless. He's not saying it doesn't have any significance. What he's saying is as we try to to look around the world and make sense of it, we, we can't. To us, it's nonsensical. We, we can't find the hidden pieces. 
So death takes young and old, the rich and powerful, those we would reward with long life, taken. Those we'd see stopped, continuing on. Just from looking around, we can't discover what God's doing and we don't know the future. The ins and outs of life, we don't know what to expect. There's only one constant, one certainty, the same one that you keep crashing into in Ecclesiastes and that is death. Chapter 9, verse 1. So I reflected on all this and I concluded the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands but no man knows whether love or hate awaits him. Now he's talking about life under the sun here. All share a common destiny. The righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who don't. As it is with the good man, so it is with the sinner. As it is with those who take oaths, so it is with those who are afraid to take them. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The heart of men, moreover, are full of evil and there's madness in their hearts while they live and afterwards they join the dead. No matter who you are, your your status, your wealth, your intelligence, your zealousness, your morality or lack of those things, death is the fate for you. In this world, everything is up in the air. We don't know whether we're going to be loved, whether we're going to be hated. We don't know those things, but one thing is sure, each one of us is going to be lowered down into the grave. The teacher observes this is an evil. No, I don't think he means morally evil. He means it doesn't make sense and he wants it to. He's saying, I don't like this, but it's reality. We want justice to be done. We want punishment and reward. We want our lives to go smoothly and predictably and those bad guys out there to be removed. But there's something about death that's just incomprehensible. It defies our attempts to understand it. And so much so that when we experience it, we recoil. That's what you hear in grief, isn't it? You hear those uh, taken too soon, they didn't deserve to die. Why? Why did this happen? Those unexpected deaths. Deaths incomprehensible and, by definition, it limits our knowledge. Check out verses 5 and 6, for example. The living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. There's a limit to our knowledge there. They have no further reward. Even the memory of them is forgotten. Their love, their hate, their jealousy, they've long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. Death's the great limiter. We can't understand because there's death in the world. What happens under the sun is a different world to what happens in the grave. And we can't get past that wall. We keep running into it. Death stands in our way and makes this life actually senseless. But the teacher's not just kind of thrusting this ugly truth in our face for fun. He's not a school bully, you know, taunting with an unpleasant but uh, obvious truth. He's a teacher of wisdom. His aim is to help us to see reality, the reality that is in front of us, but to live accordingly. Wisdom, and here's my definition, wisdom is how to live in the light of reality. I think that's what he's trying to do here. Death is the reality that the teacher's bringing to bear. Death and and the senselessness, it brings to life under the sun. So what does the teacher present as wisdom in the light of the reality of death? 
Well, at first uh, kind of look over, and it actually looks like a bit of a hedonistic answer. Chapter 8, verse 15. So I commend the enjoyment of life, because nothing is better for a man and the son than to eat and drink and be glad. Then joy will accompany him in his work all the days of the life that God has given him under the sun. Or again, chapter 9, 7. Go, eat your food with gladness, drink your wine with a joyful heart, for it is now that God favours what you do. Always be clothed in white and and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife, who you love, all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun, all your meaningless days. For this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labour under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the grave, where you're going, there's neither working, nor planning, nor knowledge, nor wisdom. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Rather than letting the realities of death depress and disable, the teacher says, well, that's the reality. Enjoy yourself. Don't forget about death, but don't let it stop you from living. So, wear the clothes of celebration, not mourning. That's the white clothes. Make yourself look good. Get married. Go to work. Go to study. If you're part of our mission team, listen to Taylor Swift. If you've been here last night, eat your delicious Persian salmon. If you're man versus food. He he says, live while you're alive. Life is better than death. We all know that. But is the teacher suggesting a sort of mindless consumption and hedonism? The YOLO life that everyone around us is living. Hashtag swag YOLO. It doesn't make any sense. So just give up and have fun. Is that all the wisdom he can offer? No, I I think there is actually something more going on here. Uh, There's just more to this wisdom than just don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Now, you would have seen, of course, right the whole way along, that the teacher does understand what he's trying and failing to comprehend are not random occurrences, but the works of God. We're not talking about the cruelties of random chance, but the unknowable works of God. In verse uh, 17, chapter 8, the works and activities he's trying to discover are God's works and activities. Then I saw all that God had done. No one can comprehend what goes under the sun. What the teacher is not promoting is Godless pleasure-seeking for its own sake. Now, the reality he wants us to see is that what is unknowable for us What's, what's meaningless, what we cannot understand, is still under God's control. The life and death of a person is directed by God. Chapter 9, verse 1, So I reflected on all this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands. I think actually what the teacher is trying to do is free people from YOLO consumption on the face of death on one hand, and a pessimistic, dispirited nihilism on the other. He's balancing knowing reality and enjoying life. He frees people from agonising over their karma points, on the one hand, uh, while not letting them uh, get away with expectation in in blind faith that everything's going to be fair and work out really nicely for them. No, his answer is, you don't know that, so trust in God and his judgment. That's how we can say. Verse 7 again, Go eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart. 
For it's now that God favours what you do. Or as another translation puts it, God has already accepted your works. Now as we hear that, we need to remember where we are. The teacher, as we read earlier in, in another chapter, is king in Jerusalem. He's God's ruler in God's place, teaching God's wisdom to God's people. Hopefully those phrases are are familiar from the last series he did. I I don't know what language John was using, but uh, when you were looking at the overview of uh, the Bible. He's not talking to outsiders about how to get right with God or, or that getting right with God doesn't matter. He's speaking to God's people and he's freeing them from the fear that they might do something, uh, do whatever their hand finds to do. We need to recognise that actually this is not something that the teacher can just look around and see by mere observation. God's relationship with and trustworthiness is something that has been revealed to the teacher intimately and also in the history of the nation that he rules. He knows that life and death and the future are in God's hands because he's the king of the nation that God has chosen to reveal himself to and the truth of reality to. By his assumptions about God, he's hinting that we need more than just observation to find true wisdom. Well, we're searching for wisdom. Wisdom is to live in the light of true reality. Wisdom is to live knowing that we can't make sense of this world because of death, but we can live and enjoy understanding that God is acting in ways that we can't know. However, I I don't know about you, but I sometimes find this answer not very satisfying. When everything goes down the toilet, it it can be a a, a bit of pill to swallow to say to someone, Ah, don't worry about it. God's got it under control. Sometimes that seems to me only half an answer. You know what? Even though the teacher is holding out this, uh, this glimmer of comfort, I think he is aware that there's a bigger answer than what he's able to say. He's itching more than scratching. Even as he presents what is a workable wisdom so that we can go on with living in the senselessness of death, he wants to make sure that we also understand the limits of the wisdom we have discovered, the limits of the wisdom that he's putting forward. And so to do that, I think he tells the story of the poor wise man in the city, the tail end of chapter 9. The one who has the wisdom to save but is forgotten. And so his wisdom is undone. It's worthless in the end. Verse 13. I also saw under the sun this example of wisdom that greatly impressed me. There was once a small city with only a few people in it and a powerful king came against it, surrounded it and built huge siege works against it. Now there lived in that city a poor, sorry, a man poor but wise and he saved the city by his wisdom but nobody remembered that poor man. So I said, wisdom is better than strength, but the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are no longer heeded. 
Now, the quiet words of rulers are more to be heeded than the shouts of ruler of fools. Wisdom is better than the weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Even wisdom that can save a city is undone by the wickedness of others. And so I think we return to where we start, through ignorance, through stubbornness, pride or hate. In sin, we destroy, we disregard, we disable wisdom. Here's an itch. And it's wise to say it's beyond logic. The sinfulness of humans is not reasonable. It's not sensible, it's not sane. Sin in the hearts of people is madness, chapter 9, verse 3. What we have here in Ecclesiastes is mostly an itch, not a scratch. I think it leaves us only half satisfied and looking for a fuller answer. So where does that itch lead us? The madness of sin, the incomprehensibility of death need more of an answer than just this. What can we say in the face of these things? Well, we read it before in Luke. Uh, Jesus is presented with a prime example of horrible death and senseless suffering. Uh, very much like uh, what we see in the news at the moment. Very much like what has prompted the teacher in Ecclesiastes chapter 8.14. Jesus uses it as an opportunity to teach us true wisdom in the face of death. Let's have a look at it again. At that time, some people came and reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices, a heinous evil. And he responded to them, do you think that these Galileans were more sinful than all Galileans because they suffered these things? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. He reflects back on uh, a natural disaster that happened sometime. Those 18, uh, or those 18 that the tower in Siloam fell on and killed, do you think they were more sinful than all the people who live in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. See, Jesus reveals to us a truth from God that mere observation can't discover. He makes sense of what the teacher can't. The good and the wicked all have the same fate because of sin. All people die because of sin. It's not the timing or the manner of deaths that are the problem. It's the sin that we all have, the righteous and the wicked in uh, the teacher's words, that leads each one of us towards perishing. You see, the wisdom of Jesus is to see death, recognise that that is our future, and so to repent, to turn back to God, uh, the God that we've all ignored and rebelled against. True wisdom is repentance. Now, if you've not repented, if you have not turned back to God, now would be a good chance to do that recognising the reality that just like Philip Hughes, you could be knocked down at any moment. But even as Jesus calls people to repent, he's holding out the promise of life, isn't he? Uh, To repent means, sorry, to not repent means perishing. So repenting means not perishing, not to be destroyed by death. True wisdom is to live with death 
defying hope. Much like chapter 9, verse 4 of Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes, the teacher recommends a a trust that God will work it out, even if we, we can't know how. So he says, don't worry about it. But he does give that glimmer in chapter 9, verse 5, that while you're alive, you have a chance to do something about it. You see that there? But in Jesus, we've got something even better than that. Something fuller, the full answer. In Jesus, the hidden plans of God to deal with death are revealed. In Jesus, we see the hidden plans of God for life. In Jesus, we see what the teacher could not quite get a hold of. In Jesus, we see that God himself enters into the senselessness and the incomprehension of unjust suffering. God enters into the experience that the teacher holds out as senseless, as meaningless. Jesus is the poor man despised by sinful rulers. Jesus is the righteous man getting what the actions of the wicked deserve. In Jesus we see God entering into the grave himself, into Sheol. God enters into death to deal with sin so that repenting we might not perish because our sins have been taken away. We see revealed what can never be known by observation alone. We see God's plan to defeat death, to do away with death once for all. He raises this righteous one, Jesus, from the dead. We can have a fuller and richer trust in God than that which the teacher is suggesting. It's on the same trajectory, but a fuller form. From where he stood some hundreds of years before Jesus, he didn't know how God was going to sort it out. He just knew that he would. But we look back after Jesus raised from the dead and know with great certainty, full certainty, that God has dealt with the senselessness, the incomprehensibility, the meaningless of death once for all. It's only with Jesus then that we can make sense of those glimmers in Ecclesiastes like chapter 9 verse 4. Anyone who is among the dead has hope. Or, perhaps better put, literally anyone who is joined to the living has hope. Hope is for the one who is joined to the living. If you are joined to the living one, you are joined to life. If you are joined to Jesus by trusting in him, you are in Christ, there is hope beyond death. Resurrection hope that you will be raised as well. The teacher shows us it's wise to live in the light of true reality. His wisdom to live in the light of true reality of death. What's wisdom for Christians is to live in the light of the reality of death and resurrection. When the people of this world look around at at death and suffering, they have no answer. They are just going off observation. Uh, They have no answer or they make up other hopeless ones like karma. There comes a point in everyone's lives, as in our public consciousness right now, when senseless death rears its head. And then, like the Australian cricketers, 
They're inconsolable. Looking around, there's no answer, but in the gospel of Jesus raised from the dead, we have the consolation. We have God's own salve for healing the hurts and injustices. We have true wisdom revealed to us. In God's wisdom, he has given us the message to hang on to when we ourselves approach death, that though we die, yet we will live again, joined to Jesus' resurrection. But of course, that's not just a comfort for us in our hard times, in our suffering, but one that we must hold out, one that we must hold out to each other, but also to other Australians and people around the world. They're hurting. People are hurting right now as they think about Philip Hughes. They're grieving. They need to hear this answer. The teacher holds our comfort that all people are in God's hands. We have that fullest form of comfort. This is what we need to hold out to hurting people. God, the one who has destroyed death in the, son of his, in the death of his son Jesus, he holds you in your hands, in his hands. God, the one who has destroyed death in the death of his son Jesus, he holds you in his hands. Turn to him and find hope. Let me pray. Father God, you are the author of life. You are the God of the living and the dead, the one who raised your son Jesus from death and have promised to do the same for all of us. Lord, I pray that we might repent, that we might turn back to you, some of us renewing our faith in you, others of us perhaps for the first time. Lord, I pray that we might cling to resurrection life, that we might hold out that message of hope and joy to these people around us who are suffering, who want sense but can't make it. Lord, we pray that you give us uh, that word that many might be saved. Amen.